0: Well, welcome everybody. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the convener of the Ralph Miliband program here at the LSC and I also run the postgraduate program in political sociology. And tonight's lecture is the first of eight lectures in a series we're running on the future of the left, which I think you'll agree is both a highly topical theme, especially after the financial crisis we've all experienced, and also a theme which I'm sure Ralph Miliband himself would have thoroughly approved of. And we've brought together for this series really a remarkable group of eminent scholars, of sociologists, political scientists, economists, and historians from three different continents, arguably four. Um, And today, we're privileged to have the first of those here Uh, Colin Crouch. Now Colin, um, somewhat like Ralph Miliband actually, has a a long connection to the LSE going back to his uh, period as a young man, we might say. Uh, He was a student here. Indeed, he was a student leader during the great wave of uh, unrest that uh, gripped um, the United Kingdom as well as elsewhere in the (laughs) late 1960s. And he taught here at the Department of Sociology for many years before moving to further posts in Oxford University, the European University Institute, and most recently at Warwick University. Uh, Colin is, in addition, a fellow of the British Academy He's got numerous accolades which I won't embarrass him by listing, but I think it's worth pointing out that his eminence rests both on his scholarly prestige and also on his role in public life. And he's been an advisor to numerous national think tanks as well as working on collaborative projects and as an advisor to the European Commission, to the OECD and other organisations of that nature. There are over 200 publications to his name and you'll be pleased to hear that I don't propose to start listing them but I do want to just indicate the extent to which he's been a leading contributor to a series of central debates in public life. Debates, for example, about the upsurge of industrial unrest in the 1970s, about corporatism and different other forms of interest representation in the 1980s, debates about different varieties of capitalism in the 1990s, and in the last decade, debates about democracy and neoliberalism. And it's out of those contributions in the last decade that his most recent book um, emerges. And this is The Strange Non-Death of Neoliberalism. And this book Like many of Colin's other works, has already achieved significant accolades. And indeed, it's recently won a prestigious prize from the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, the Social Democratic Party's foundation in Germany. Um, It's been awarded the prize for the best book on politics that was published in the last year. Well, tonight, um, Colin is going to not reprise the argument of that book, but develop some further thoughts he's had um, Since writing it, the title of his talk is Social Democracy as the Highest Form of Liberalism. And after he's given his lecture, um, there'll be a period for questions and um, discussion. I just want to finally end on a personal note to say that I've now had the privilege of knowing uh, you, Colin, for a quarter of a century. Um, And so it's really, um, for me personally, as well as for the Ralph Miliband program and for the LSE as a whole, um, it's a wonderful pleasure to be able to invite you to address us here tonight. Professor Crouch.
1: Thank you for that, Robin. Uh, I overlapped several years here with Ralph Miliband. We were both on the LSE staff together in the 1970s. Um, He never really approved of me, uh, (laughs) because during the student revolt, to which Robin has referred, I eventually became the leader of the moderates, the people who wanted a kind of revolt about various things, but wanted to get compromises and uh, didn't want too much upheaval, which meant I was yet another reproduction of the phenomenon he'd vilified in his book on Parliamentary Socialism, uh, published in 1961 which was an expose of how uh, sort of parliamentary-type leaders who, who tried to get compromises and, 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 in his view, thwarted the revolution, uh, had spoiled everything. But our last meeting together was actually a very pleasant one. Uh, he left the LSE to go to Leeds and I left to go to Oxford. And there was one day, we, there was a, 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 a doctoral thesis to be examined uh, by um, a chap called David Lazar, who had actually been one of the, the, the revolutionary students at the LSC during the, the 60s. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very prescient thesis. It was about the extraordinary short time horizons of people working in the City of London, but this is, this is very early 1990s, if not might even in the late 80s, so it's very, very prescient work. And I was the internal examiner and Ralph was the external, so we met in that sort of pleasant way you do when you examine theses. And, I found him in a very benign and, and, and pleasant mood. Uh, he was very happy at Leeds, and he was already very proud of his sons. Um, I did mutter something over lunch about they might end up careful, they might end up being examples of parliamentary socialism. Had I been talking to him ten years later, I wouldn't have muttered, would I? I'd have grabbed him by the neck and said, look what you've produced. Um, but, uh, Ralph well, was was a very major figure in that period for, I'm thinking back now, the, the 60s and 70s, for uh, writing about the nature of modern capitalism. And re- looking again at his books, especially Parliamentary Socialism, and, and more importantly, one he, he published in 1969 called The State in Capitalist Society, in order to prepare this lecture, I realized he, he, he was in that book that second book doing something rather similar to what I've been trying to do recently but I also realized how much more difficult his task had been, because he was writing in a period where people were in denial that there was such a thing as an overweening business power in politics uh, people like Anthony Croston the great social democratic thinker had said "How capitalism has been tamed now it's all right It's A gentle pussycat, not a wild beast. It doesn't have to be fought against. Uh, And that was a general kind of mood. And that mood, of course, continued on. It was very much the same message of of new Labour. There was a kind of comfort zone that Labour people, and their equivalents in, in most other countries, had that actually a lot of struggles didn't have to be waged anymore. It was all right now. Uh, and their belief that it was all right, it gave them that comfort that to, to, to say, right, we, but then there's a, we, 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 we've got a much simpler life. Uh, and people like Ralph were disturbing that by saying, actually, no, there's an enormous amount of power being wielded out there. And I say his task was therefore difficult. In a way, mine has been much easier, because today you actually aren't revealing anything very secret and, and are difficult to discover that there is overweening business power over politics because they are strutting it and showing it off. Uh, Goldman Sachs do not pretend they have no influence over the uh, financial policies of the United States government. Uh, I, mean, I remember at during, during the, the, one point during the late 60s, uh, We're having a conversation with uh, Lionel Robbins, Lord Robbins as he became, after him the library here is named. A great figure in the LSE's history and and in the history of of sort of centre-right economics. And he said to me, this man Milliband, he's just wrong. I have seen captains of industry quake with fear before they enter an office in Whitehall. Yeah, Right. So when McDonald's go to advise the Prime Minister on his food policy, they quake with fear that he might not accept every single thing they might say. Um, Today, and and also governments today are only too willing to boast of the fact that that, that business influences everything they do. So there's been a complete change. What what Ralph had to to show to people, uh, we now can see, and as I say, it's boasted of rather than kept concealed. He and other Marxists were able to do that. They were able, one at the same time, both to show how that power is exercised and also how Puny were attempts to combat it through his work on parliamentary socialism because Marxists had their own comfort zone. The comfort zone of, of people like Tony Crosland was, it's all all right now, the beast has been tamed. For Ralph and others, it was, history is moving on. One day, inevitably, the working class will rise up. And there might, the logic of history is that all, these, all the parliamentary socialists and all the others can ever do is just impede it for a bit. But it will happen. So that gave them a comfort zone from which they could then... Uh, Analyze much more critically, much more ruthlessly than people committed to living in a society could do. Which is why Marxist scholarship, especially of that period, has a particular edge. Because it's able to, it's not afraid of, of laying bare what it sees. But it's also based on an illusion. Because it's based on the view that somehow one day through means that are never ever spelled out, the working class will rise up. Um, so what happens if you, you accept Ralph Miliband and the other Marxists' uh, analysis of, of the role of power of the rich and of corporations in our society? So you take away the old social democratic comfort zone, but you also don't believe that anyone is going to rise up. So you take away the Marxist comfort zone. You're left in a prickly uncomfortable place. And that's the place where I'm inviting you to join me this evening. The the, the real problem is that for Marxists there was always the possibility of abolishing power. And it's the realization that you can't abolish power any more than you can abolish matter. That is the beginning of a whole revisionist set of thought processes. By definition, it seems to me, the left, if we define what what is the left, the left are those political forces that represent and stand for those who do not have power, uh, now, in, in, in earlier um, in earlier periods of history, you might identify a right and a left, and you eventually get that, 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 that those who are powerless come into power because it's all among elites, uh, and it just all changes round in the way that revo- concept of revolution was seen up until the, the French Revolution, and so. Um, you get change of hands of power. Now the whole point of, 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 of the socialist movement and of Marxism was that when the working class itself, those who are def- by definition the powerless, when they come into power, they can all they can do is abolish the whole idea of power. Feeding on that, on a predecessor of Marx, the French, uh, Saint-Simon, who was seen, often seen as the founder of socialism, that idea of, in his phrase, abolishing the government of men by the administration of things. Something that was to become a slogan, really, of of Sidney and Beatrice Webb, of this place. uh, that, That you can get rid of all of that and you just have a rational administration of life. And it's the realization that that doesn't, ever happen that is a, it gives the heart of the problem of the left because if you can't abolish power then the rep- representing those who are by definition people without power is always a task that cannot get any final victories its victories can only take two forms it can take the form of the triumph of parliamentary leaders who betray uh, the movement and become capitalist lapdogs, as the, the kind of people Ralph Miliband wrote about in Parliamentary Socialism, or it, it, it generates its own monsters instead of lapdogs, Rottweilers who turn on the movement itself. Uh, and, the, the, that great, the, and the left has this awful history of seeing great potential leaders who, want, who will lead the movement, who in the end, of course, turn against it itself and become monsters. Napoleon Bonaparte and uh, Lenin, Gaddafi, and others. Uh, so there's, it, it, you, if you want leaders, you either get a Rottweiler or a, or a lapdog. There are certainly dogs. Um, but the first person, actually, the first well-known person, really, to perceive both of those types was actually Beethoven. And it's, uh, it's well known how he, uh, he decided that once when, when Napoleon declared himself emperor, he would now oppo- oppress the peoples like everybody else and ripped off his dedication page of the, of the Third Symphony. But also that, so that was uh, Beethoven seeing the Rottweiler. But he also saw the lapdog when he went to see one of his great heroes, Goethe, uh, in, in Weimar. And there's this great man, the great, one of the great originators of Enlightenment thought and liberal thought, uh, he saw him there uh, happily giving obeisance to his, his, his petty prince in Weimar and also receiving obeisance from people below him. And Beethoven couldn't believe that Goethe could be like this. So Beethoven saw them both, in a way, the, the two possibilities. I'm oh, oh, oh. oh, sorry. Oh, is this not working? It sounds as though it's working. <laughs> okay, I'll try I have to speak loud. Uh, And so if power can't be abolished, and if one's representing the interests of those who, who don't have power, the only answer is to try to work for a society in which there's as many different sources and types of power as possible. In other words, one ends up with Lord Acton's famous dictum, all power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We can't get rid of the thing. We don't want to trust anyone with it for much. All we can do is try to build up a plurality of sources of power and of types of power. And this actually uh, is not at all congenial to the history of socialist and Marxist thought. And the idea of pluralism was an anathema to people like Ralph Miliband And, 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 and I remember spitting it out as a word, pluralism was a sort of rude word you would use partly because uh there was a belief that there'd be a socialist society we wouldn't need pluralism, but also because and going back to my notion of the social democratic comfort zone, people would describe the society in which we lived as being pluralist, and say, oh, everyone's got a little bit of a bite of the cherry, everyone gets a little bit of chance of power. There isn't really a problem of power. And so we didn't like that idea. Uh, but once you've accepted that, once you believe that you can't actually abolish power, once you don't trust anyone to wield power on behalf of the powerless, then you come to the conclusion what we need is as plural a, a set of power sources as possible. And I think that that is the lesson of the history of social democracy. Um, I, I don't call myself a socialist. Because to me, socialism is about that, uh, an attempt to replacing one form of society with another one equally monolithic. Uh, social democracy, as it developed historically, not originally, stands for uh, an ongoing, fruitful and productive confrontation between uh, representatives of the powerless and, uh, and sources of power. And it's not surprising that uh, social democrats always come back to the Nordic countries as the place where this happens because it's the only place where we're in the world and it won't have ever happen again now where we've had uh, consistent power on behalf of very organized movements of the, un- of, of the powerless in a context where the other sources of power, of capitalist power also remain strong and aren't conquered if you, go, if you look back to what say, Oslo and Stockholm were like as places to live in during the mid-50s. They weren't actually so different from what it would have been like to have been in Prague or, or Poland at the same time. All pretty utilitarian, uh, not much luxury, lots of regulations, not many restaurants. Uh, but they then went very different ways, and the Nordic countries ended up being the most tolerant, open, transparent societies the world has seen, really, alongside continuing economic vitality and innovative capacity, whereas we know where Eastern Europe went. It went towards dictatorship, police power, fear, uh, and economies that were stultified. And a very important part of the reason... And part of it is in different historical contexts. But an important part of the reason is that Swedish and other Scandinavian Nordic social democracies never conquered capitalism. They had to live alongside it. Uh, the strong parties had to live alongside strong autonomous trade union movements who didn't accept their role to be the conveyor belt of the party, as was the communist concept and they had to live alongside highly organised capitalisms, which in the the Swedish case was a global capitalism, multinational capitalism. Also, these social democracies, these very powerful labour movements of the powerless, were existing in small open economies that had no choice other than to be competitive in world markets, to accept the logic of a capitalist economy. So, had there been a total conquest, had had they been able to lock themselves in economies that didn't trade with the rest of the world and to take power away from the capitalists, I suspect the Nordics would have gone the same way that the Poles and the East Germans and the Czechs went. But they had that continuing, it was that continuing confrontation, that continuing encounter with very powerful economic forces of capitalism with with whom an accommodation had to be made that produced... The societies that we've got today and also help produce the innovative economies that they still have. And that's why I say social democracy should not try to get beyond pluralism because that way is when we elect our own Rottweilers to power. And that's why I say social democracy is a part of the liberal family. Because that, that dictum of, of Lord Acton's about power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is a quintessential statement of liberalism. Uh, and yes, socialism is always seen as something that transcended liberalism. And I say social democracy does transcend liberalism, but not in the sense that it gets rid of that fundamental importance of diversity and continuing conflict and challenge. That's that's all true for reasons of power, but it's also true for another reason, uh, and that is about the nature of knowledge. And here, one draws on another of the great figures of the LSE, uh, who went on up until the the 60s and slightly into the 70s, Karl Popper. Uh, Popper's often put together with Hayek, uh, but these are both men who had an absolute horror of state socialism, and who both believed in the extreme difficulty of organizing knowledge about a productive system and therefore both saw the market as the way in which production was most efficiently organized. But Popper Popper wasn't just that. Popper was actually a social democrat. Popper believed that you didn't just delegate everything to the market. He was interested in governance and government. Uh, And actually, it's Popper who invented the concept of social engineering now, that's always used as a boo-word. It's a right-wing boo-word, that, that that you accuse someone of social engineering. It means they're trying to mess with the natural rhythms of society in order to produce some kind of top-down outcome. But Popper, Popper who, who actually did not use it as a boo-word, he, he, he believed in social engineering. It's what he offered against Soviet planning. His concept of the engineer is not of the all-powerful controller of society. It's much more the engineer as, as the, the, the chap at the local garage who tries to fix your car. Well, let's see if this works. If it doesn't, bring it back in a week's time. There's a few more tricks I can try. Uh, it, it, it's the, the, the someone who... The social engineer isn't certain what's right, isn't an all-knowing central planner. It's someone who's who's got some knowledge and realises there's various bits of knowledge might work, and you keep trying them. And the market will be one of the ways in which we do that, but it won't be the only one. The important point is that you can only do that business of let's try something else, see if this fits, see if this works, if you've got a big diversity of stuff coming up in society. And that's when what state socialist societies eliminated and didn't make possible. It's true of technical knowledge in that sense, and economic knowledge that needs markets, but it's also true of, of moral knowledge. Once we accept a certain degree of moral relativism, so we accept multicultural societies in which, in which there are, people have got lots of different beliefs about how we should act, uh, but we... Continue to have a sense of moral seriousness, so we don't just say, "Ah, oh, let anything happen." Right. We have a problem. How, how how do we work out what's right to do? How do we know whether arranged marriages are a useful convenience or an evil? How do we ever get to know these things? And and the more you're put in a multicultural society, the more you're forced to answer these questions. And what we have to do is be willing to confront that diversity and then see if we can work a way through it. And we'll never get all knowledge of the kind that control whole systems. And we don't want to be in a position to control whole systems because we never know when new knowledge uh, is going to disrupt uh, our old knowledge. And there's uh, the, 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 going back to... Um, this is an excuse for nostalgia today, really. Um, the, the, uh, going back to another of the great figures of, of the 60s, 70s, 80s at the LSE is a figure of Ernest Gellner, <coughs> who writes somewhere in one of his books, uh, this is how moral truths come in, lamely and uncertainly. And that's how Ernest used to come in, because he was lame. He'd come up to the lectern, smooth out a bit of paper, very slowly start to talk. But, and because it was all knowledge was difficult. But there was also a constant serious search for moral truths going on in that. remember one day someone lit a cigarette. He said, there is no smoking in my lectures. That was a moral truth he certainly was aware of. But the, the point is we, we can only get... Uh, to that notion of, of dealing with the complexity of knowledge if we allow many sources of knowledge to keep going. And that is an essentially liberal vision. It's something that... And there's another, there, there, there are two Ralphs who came across from the continent of Europe and, and enlivened this place enormously. Uh, the other one being Ralph Darendorf, um, mm-hmm. who became director here. And he, um, Ralph had started his life as a Social Democrat. His father was a Social Democratic hero, Um, in the war years and and after the war in Germany Uh, and Ralph, uh, in a way that social democrats in Germany have never forgiven him um, became a liberal, a free democrat and uh, it was all about this fear he had socialists, even social democrats tried to believe they had too much knowledge about how society could be run so he became a liberal for very Popperian reasons The problem with liberalism, though, is that it has no means itself of guaranteeing that the powerless continue to have a voice. Liberalism is a kind of administrator's philosophy. If you've got a certain degree of heterogeneity in a society, it tells you how to behave. And if society has given you Catholics and various sorts of Protestants and, 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 and some seculars as well, liberalism tells you to be a good Dutch tolerant person and, and find them a place. If you've got various classes have managed to struggle to get their place on the stage, it tells you give them all their voice. But it doesn't tell you anything about what to do if some voices are deeply unrepresented. And it, I think that's why, historically, although at one level everybody's a liberal, uh, the liberal parties that the 19th century bequeathed us have everywhere become minority parties for, for relatively small middle-class elites because it's, it's, as I say, it's an administrator's creed. It tells you, like, rather like utilitarianism, to which it's related, it tells you how to cope with a society that's out there. But what do you do? This is a question Ralph Durenroff, I think, was, remained uncomfortable with at the end of his life when he, after he'd seen the neoliberal battering of, of social democratic societies. That what do you do if actually the power balance has become deeply skewed? And if, if the powerless are losing their capacity to have any voice, it doesn't tell you what to do. It doesn't tell you how to make a movement. Whereas social democracy still is... And still sees itself as being the representative of the powerless, and therefore, in my view, it's social democracy. It's only social democracy that enables liberalism to realise its own goals, which is why I give my talk this title. And that the aim of, lib- of, of social democracy is to guarantee pluralism in, a, in societies that are threatened with a gradual loss of it. Because we're now living in a period of quite a radical shift in power towards wealthy corporate interests. As I said earlier on, I'm Ralph Miliband had to demonstrate that this was going on. It's now very blatant and partly really as a result of changes in occupational structure which means that the social classes that had organized themselves autonomously to form social democratic movements are declining in size and no one has really worked out how to mobilize and organize the interests that have replaced them in post-industrial society. Partly because of globalization and favours capital over labour, looking at these two as great gross terms. And capital is mobile, labour isn't very mobile, and lots of rules are erected to stop it moving around the face of the world anyway. Uh, and, and we see this coming out, if you look, at there's a very crude statistic you can get, and that's the share of capital and labour in, in, in national income. And if you look, this reached an extreme in, in, in favour of capital around the, the time of the 1930s crash. And then, after the Second World War going on into the 1970s gradually it comes down, and so the, the labor gets more and more of a share of national income and then, starting in the United States and gradually spreading to everywhere else from the late '70s onwards, it shifts back up again, so now it 's back at the kind of level it was uh, at the time of the great crash uh, there 's an interesting statistic that uh, well, the, the, that Uh, around 1970, about the time when Miliband is is writing his book on the state in capitalist society, uh, the average CEO in a US corporation had a, a salary 40 times, 40 times, as much as the average manual worker. I'm not sure whether Ralph ever referred to that fact, but I'm sure he would have given it as evidence as to how inequalities were continuing, that the average CEO got 40 times as much as the average manual worker. By the year 2000, that figure was 1,000. The average CEO earns 1,000 times uh, the, the, average of the, uh, the income of the average manual worker. Now, outside the United States, things aren't as extreme as that, but they're going that way. This is an enormous shift towards greater inequality in the world. Uh, and we see in in most countries, if you look at the the statistics on inequality, they see a worsening uh, and a shift to more and more inequality. Interestingly, at the time when the average American CEO was earning only 40 times as much as the Um, as the average manual worker, those people were quite willing to be taxed fairly heavily in order to provide a a sort of welfare state for for the population. Now that they're earning a 1,000 times more than that, they're far less tolerant to pay taxes Uh, and uh, far more wanting to insist on on the intensification of their privileges. So we're living in a time when... uh, and this is why I say, in a way, people like Ralph Minipan needed to have looked around their society more for some good things as well as bad ones, because actually, were—he probably when he was getting so angry about capitalist society, it was probably at the most benign it had been up to that point, and it probably won't get more benign again for quite a long time to come. And so uh, we have, again, that the classic problem that social democracy confronts of the decline in the power of ordinary working people the, pa- the decline in the ability of ordinary working people to articulate their own interests is again in question and in the history of modern societies social democracy has been the only force that has tried to do that now you can say well look classic social democracy ok it was very much an affair of the male manual working class I mean, it, it, it didn't do of, of, of ethnically native workers right? That's, that, it was their movement uh, and in, it doesn't do that anymore. It, it, I mean, it doesn't. That, that they're no long, that. No longer is enough to represent the underprivileged. But actually, if you look, social democratic parties have become much smaller, and they're no longer going to be hegemonic in the way that the Scandinavians were and the British occasionally. Uh, but their their appeal and their internal electorate has changed enormously. It's no longer the case that they appeal primarily to men. And many. Uh, social democratic parties they have now more women among their voters than they do men trade unions Uh, with the exception of Germany and Austria uh, most of the the important trade union movements of the world have now more female members than male it's true of this country they've been particularly good uh, compared with the other institutions in their countries at integrating immigrants and ethnic minorities I saw interesting research recently on Spain which is generally seen as a pretty racist country uh, the attitudes of trade union members towards uh, ethnic minorities and immigrants is far more liberal than those of fellow workers of equal status who are not part of trade unions. So the social democratic movement continues though in a weaker way than in the past to to reproduce what's needed to represent the relatively powerless of the world. And that brings us then to to think, well, what is it that social democracy as the voice of the left? What is it that it needs to do today in order, to, in order to, to, to to contest the tendencies towards the growing power of corporate wealth and of very wealthy people? And I, I want to just look at three related themes. The first one, I want to look a bit closer at this point I'm making about diversity, which is not actually... Typical social democratic territory. Normally in political debate, one of the arguments used by the pro-capitalist right against the the social democratic left is is that it doesn't stand for diversity. It's about uniformity, making everyone the same. So I want to argue that actually today, the burden of carrying the flag for diversity has become a left-wing task. Secondly, I want to look briefly at a special case of that, which is the phenomenon of externalities. And then thirdly, I want to look at what looks much more familiar ground to the left, the issue of, of collective common goods, which is um, actually paradoxically becoming the, more, the most troublesome of these. First of all, to turn back again to what I mean by the, the, the task of the left is to carry the flag for diversity. If we have increasingly... Uh, governing our affairs not just an insistence on markets and on economic return which is is a kind of Janus face thing because markets do bring choice and diversity and I would hold to that as a a very valuable important thing of markets but markets do also mean some things get done and other things get get neglected so if you say we will do what the market wants that means you're excluding a lot of things from life that the market won't give you Um, but also when we say markets and this is one of the themes of this recent book of mine um, uh, that when we say markets we often actually mean large corporations who are often in very impure oligopolistic markets and actually often to say let's give it over to the market means to give an air of life over to a small group of oligopolistic uh, corporations and that's where there is now a problem of challenge to diversity in a world increasingly governed by these forces. A remark made to me a few weeks ago by Jean Seaton, who some of you may know of Jean, she's a historian of the BBC. She said, it's very interesting to look at how differently news corporation behaves in Sky News in the United Kingdom and Fox News in the United States same corporation owns these two things. The same man, Rupert Murdoch, right, is the big figure in both of these. Uh, Sky News is actually an extremely balanced, uh, thoughtful uh, station, television news station, uh, that gives you a rounded view of what's going on in the world. Fox in the United States is a voice of the Tea Party. Now, why, in the one case, do you get... Uh, an organisation that's devoted to giving you a rounded view of diverse opinions allowed to be represented, and the other just represents one. And the answer, Jean was saying, lies in the fact that there are broadcasting regulations in this country, whereas there are none in the United States. And broadcasting is an interesting case of where diversity needs regulation to ensure it exists, and where the market left to itself produces a lack of diversity. This isn't always true. Uh, If you take something like local radio stations in a city the size of New York or London, uh, you will find an enormous rich diversity of of programmes going on, catering to all kinds of tastes and opinions. But that's because something like local radio, with very very, uh, low entry costs, does generate a genuine market. But if you look at something like mass broadcasters, there you have markets that are very difficult to access and where you get a tiny number of global players and where, therefore, there is a low level of actual competition in the market. These are oligopolistic markets. They do not provide diversity. And you only will get diversity guaranteed when there's regulation that ensures it's there. I always used to think that Margaret Thatcher's greatest achievement was the establishment of Channel 4 television in this country. Channel 4 was established so that it really would produce a proper market economy. It was neither a state channel nor was it allowed to be dominated by the large media corporations. They were kept out of it. It was to be a place where the small firms could uh, could develop a genuine programme market. And while it lasted, it did that and produced an enormous diversity of wonderful innovative programs. But actually, the economic model was flawed. It it couldn't work, and eventually it had to be given over to the large broadcasting corporations, the private ones, and now it does nothing very interesting at all. If you want the kind of thing that Channel 4 used to do, you have to go to BBC 4 where within the umbrella of the state-regulated model, uh, there is a channel there that sees a certain amount of diversity. So we see in broadcasting, which is an interesting case, a very important example of the kind of services product characteristic of of our time. But we see, and, and you can repeat it in other sectors too, how actually... When you get get sectors where the market itself can't produce diversity and where you've got oligopoly, it's actually only regulation that will give you that diversity. And and social democracy is the representative of the the non-powerful groups, the ones who would always be worried about the power of individual corporations to dominate markets, will be the political force that tends to say, hey, we 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 need regulation here in order to get plurality. Regulation, when, it, when it's used as a word in politics, its automatic associations are bureaucracy and red tape. But no, regulation, depending on how it's designed, can also be the guarantor of diversity in our lives. And it's, it's now fallen to Social Democrats to, uh, to, to, to fight for that cause because the political right has been willing to follow the logic of corporate dominance, with a few exceptions. Markets... Markets need protection from the firms that dominate them. And in a a curious way, often it will be social democrats who are prepared to provide those markets uh, and to liberate markets from firms, either by regulation or by insisting on competition, because the political right is very much caught up now with the interests of dominant firms. Similarly, democracy has to be protected from those who win its competitions see the, the the problem is both markets and democracy produce winners and winners accumulate power and winners abuse power and there needs to be a constant reinforcement partly of competition in order to ensure that not too much power accumulates but also of regulation that ensures that when the powerful have got their power, there are limits to how they can wield it. And that, if we look at taking this now, I'm talking about it in markets, but now moving on to looking at what that means in politics, it means some things that social democrats, or certainly socialists, are often unhappy with, uncomfortable with, but which I think we need to say these are our territory now we are the only people who are going to defend these in a world where the political right is more and more confident of its power see which politician in this in Britain on two occasions last year attacked judges for being unelected it wasn't Tony Benn it wasn't some other firebrand of the left it was David Cameron and that's dangerous When a Prime Minister starts to undermine the legitimacy of the law courts on the grounds they're not elected, then he is beginning to undermine the basis of the rule of law. Because the rule of law says there are some areas where democracy doesn't actually go in order to protect it from itself, in order to protect it from the people who win it and that it used to be an old left-wing rabble-rousing cry, you see, that we we can't have judges deciding things. We the people will win democratic power in parliament and will then tell the judges what to do. And that was socialism at its most potentially most dangerous. Uh, Now it's the political right that has the confidence to say perhaps we don't need such autonomous judges. Also last year Who was it who attacked statistical, who attacked the the British statistical services for uh, criticizing a statement he'd made using statistics and saying he'd been completely distorted? It was Boris Johnson. Uh, He he made some absurd statement about crime and the head of the statistical service, a very honorable civil servant, years, Sir Michael Scholar, years in the civil service serving under a number of governments. uh, And Boris Johnson said he's a labor hack meaning he's challenged my political use of statistics with with neutrality. That's what got the Greek government into trouble in the first place, was politically distorting statistics. So the information services and statistical services have to be protected from the reach of democracy if they are to serve democracy. More contentious perhaps among left-wing audiences, I think the same is true of independent central banks. It's not actually in the interests of, of electorates to have politicians able to manipulate money supply aggregates in order to fix a certain election outcome. Far better for democracy that that sort of thing's taken out of the reach of politicians. So I think the left today has an historically unusual mission of being the forces that, that protect... Markets and democracy from their abuse by power holders. It's a charge that if the left doesn't take that role, I'm not sure it's going to be taken up. This is, I say, it's in uncongenial territory for the left. Um, but I think we have to see it's now that if the left doesn't do it, at a time when, we're living at a time now when the, the power balance between a very small elite and everybody else is, is very extreme. And it's a time, therefore, to defend the plurality of institutions. Now, I said, I'm going to give my second point. It's going to be about externalities. Um, uh, Externalities, it's this strange word that economists use. Some of you are probably economists and understand it better than I do. But uh, what one means by an externality is a byproduct of a market activity that is itself not represented in the market exchange. They can be positive or negative, but we're really interested in the negative ones. And the, the most easy example to grasp is when, uh, it, it, when an economic activity is, produces pollution. So if I set up a factory and I, I, I dispose of my effluent in a river and poison the fish, uh, that doesn't enter my cost calculations, right? I'm buying raw materials, I'm employing labour, I've got a factory, I produce products and sell them in a market. At no point does the fact I've killed the local uh, river's fish enter into these calculations. And it, it's one of the ways in which markets can fail. And and so now, it it doesn't mean necessarily, as economists tell us, that you have to remedy an externality. It may be that the good I do by producing these wonderful products in my factory uh, is far more important than a few fish. Uh, And so just to identify an externality is not to identify a wrong, but it often is. And it's the problem with markets is that, that when, one, when one makes a market, one is, the whole point of what one's doing is saying, here are a set of things we can maximise. Uh, and we can get extreme efficiencies and meet people's demands by putting these things in a market. Uh, and one of the things you do in order to do that is to say, then we're going to disregard a whole series of other things. They, they're not in this market exchange. They're a nuisance. Just get rid of them. Forget them. And sometimes you can forget them, but sometimes problems are produced by doing that that cry out for solutions. So, for example, look at the labour market. uh, For the purposes of really efficient markets, you want extremely flexible labour markets where people can be disposed of and hired at will, uh, and where some people, in order to uh, be competitive uh, in their activities, earn extremely low wages. And that's, that's the, what the market does. There are externalities from that in human suffering, in poverty, in fear and anxiety about a future if you might lose your job and you're already very poor. They don't enter into the market transaction, but they are an externality produced by it. And that, you might say, well, it's just a transition, tough. Eventually you'll get wealthier, wait. Wait. But sometimes that's no use, and one says, "Right, therefore we need social policies that run alongside that marketisation." Okay, I have flexible labour markets, but something's got to be done about the casualties. So it's not just about not just pollution. You can see the externalities coming as a whole series of points. Now, if we are increasingly in a society where we're told. Actually, you need these market forces, especially those that are dominated by large corporations, uh, and that that is increasing the efficiency of what we do. And you don't get attention paid to the negative consequences of that. You store up problems and misery and unhappiness of of, of many kinds. And this is what is happening at the moment with the European Union, in that it's pursuing an agenda of marketisation and it is not pursuing the agenda of if you like mopping up after the marketization okay we've 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 forced the greeks to to find a labor market value for their wages uh, what do you do about the extreme poverty that results from that and the answer is wait till they get better so it's it's this is this is an old old mission of the left it seems to me that that in fact does not diminish in, in contemporary society it actually gets more and more important because as we, as we drive, and, and there are often very good reasons for driving markets and for having more markets and for having more open markets, uh, internationally trading markets. There are very benign consequences that come from that. But if you say that, that the main purpose of policy is just to drive that and then you, you don't do the mopping up, then you create very unhappy societies. And so the, 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 very, the mere need for the marketization program creates the need for the other programs that, again, only social democracy historically has stood for. And finally, coming to what I said was social democracy's familiar territory, uh, the collective good. That's where everyone on the left is quite happy to talk Uh, Some externalities affect highly identifiable groups of individuals. But it's quite common with externalities. One reason why they are externalities and why they can't be recaptured by other markets is that they're they're collective and public uh, in their consequences. So, um, Climate change is an example. You you can't reduce climate change to a series of impacts on, on individuals who might protect themselves. Uh, and so among the, the external uh, and, and, and climate change is, is of course the most important example that, uh, given that human beings have now got so much power and potency we are able to do things that have enormous collective consequences uh, and this therefore opens up what is the classic entry signal for the left right the collective we, can, we do it right that's our job And there's a fascinating little paradox here, actually, that um, the working class, the the mass of ordinary, propertyless people, eventually became the people in whose name the search for the collective good was most developed. Historically, this is actually very strange. There's a longer-term historical perspective That the the ordinary poor, the rural poor, the industrial poor, were the people outside public life. And the word private is, is related to the word privation. And to be private is originally to be cut off from public life. And ordinary people, they had no property, they had no stake in a country, they lived rather short lives of toil, they, they had no public responsibilities. It was, the, it was the aristocrats and the old bourgeoisie who were seen as the public classes. These are the people who are honoured by the public, these are the people around the king and the court, people who, who prance around being public persons, working for the public good. Uh, in, in, in Edmund Burke's phrase the, the great families who were the oak trees on which the, the British society was built they had a stake in the country and therefore when they worked for their private interests they were also working for the public interest and it's interesting these public classes didn't actually do a very good job of it uh, It wasn't really until the working class arrived on the scene, first of all, as an object to be feared, and then as a subject with its own political autonomy, that people actually really looked at genuine public and collective tasks. But there is a warning there. You see, why why did that happen? Why did such a class, the, 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 the class outside of public life, the class without a stake in the country, why did it become the class around which eventually the collective good could be pursued? It was because these were people who had nothing, or very, very little, and who couldn't really get anything unless it was a collective provision. They had no private grounds to walk around, so they needed public parks to walk around to get fresh air. There was no way they could get health and education by buying it in a market. It was only collective provision. And so the class that was outside the public became the class that represented the public. But there's a nasty little catch here. And that is that once ordinary working people do start to get enough money to be able to get a few things for themselves, they can actually pursue certain solutions privately. And they might actually have a bigger incentive than anybody else, because they're on the margins, of saying, well, if only taxes were a bit less and we had less of this collective provision, we might actually be able to do a bit more for ourselves. And this, I think, is the historical turn that has, has, has led to a lot of unease, and it leads to phenomena like New Labour that start to think of, of of junking the whole collective project. That uh, if you say to... If, 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 if people... And the more affluent who've got a social conscience, it's much easier. Yeah, we can afford to pay a bit more taxation for the welfare state. If you're someone who's just able to get into that, you're just able to start buying a private pension, then you might resent having to pay taxes to help other people get a pension, even though the private pension you're going to get is actually a junk pension. And pension's where we're seeing this most extreme at the moment. It's it's, it's the forerunner of where there's an enormous incentive to privatisation and where the private market is letting people down very, very badly. But there is a a problem that that you can't take for granted that it will be ordinary working people who respond most readily to the demand for, for collective things. On the other hand, there is a wider public that is increasingly being offended by the damage being done to our collective lives by by the super-rich and by the new elites. And the the, the, the Occupy Wall Street movement had as its slogan um, that that we are the 99%. They were exaggerating enormously the size of the small elite. that's the problem. It's not 1%, it's 0.1%. The, we are, with the degree of inequality we've got now, with a, a globalized wealthy elite, uh, they themselves are in a vulnerable moment in a way because they are extremely detached from the middle class. Because they're global, they're detached from any one society on the planet. The old elites tended to be embedded in a country and belong to it. This new global elite isn't, and it's arrogant. And one thing that, what, that, that uh, rich elites learned in the past was that they could accept democracy provided they could get the support of the kind of, the, 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 the top 50%. So that, that, that you, uh, uh, to identify as all propertied people against the propertyless masses where well, there aren't propertyless masses much anymore the, 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 the bogey of the propertyless masses is, has is, is disappeared and, and, and so inventing the, the, the beast that somehow unites very wealthy elites with the mass of the middle class is more challenging and a highly improbable, up until now, extremely successful alternative has been invented in the benefit scrounger. And for some reason, social democratic parties are depicted as people who have, who have as their concern protecting and advancing the interests of benefit scroungers against the rest of the population. Quite why anyone should want to do that is never made clear, but it's, it's kind of replaced the idea of the great mass of the working class. They're coming to get your property away. It's now a few Romanian immigrants and benefits granders instead. Uh, It's it's a vulnerable strategy being played out by an elite that is becoming extremely remote. So although there are problems about the commitment of ordinary working people to uh, the old collectivist project, there is a gap opening up, a gap of opportunity for the political left in this increasing remoteness of of, of an extremely arrogant global wealth elite. Now I've been stressing, I'm winding up now, uh, I've been stressing how uh, there is no longer a hegemonic working class. Uh, There is no longer uh, a need or temptation for the political left to seek large hegemonic uniform solutions. And although some people might see that as a kind of defeat of the classic Marxist socialist project, it's probably also a good thing, because it does mean societies of more diversity, more pluralism in them. And the same applies to the routes through political life that we choose to take in order to to try and do some good in the world. And the, 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 both Marxists and social democrats have always shared a notion that what the left needed to do was organise all of its organisations and bits about around one big collective project, because it's exist- originally it's seen as existing in a hostile society where every institution, whether it's churches or local. Authorities or, or whatever it was, uh, were hostile to the project. And you got this alternative new project that you were going to put as a kind of alternative society. In the case of Catholic countries, it became a, an entire counterculture to the dominant Catholic culture. Uh, now, if actually we're no longer dealing in hegemonies, we can look outside all of that and say, actually there might be a whole plurality of paths through all of this, and that, they, that the idea that electing a party is the only thing might need to go. And here there's, it's interesting, because Ralph Miliband's suspicion of parliamentary socialism means he certainly isn't someone who's insisting on this kind of route. He's got his other route about an organised working class that somehow is going to organise itself but if you, if you regard both that the party as the perfect solution and this sort of mass uprising solution not going to happen you start to say well let's look around at a lot of different alternative things uh, that state power political uh, parliamentary political power in the conventional sense isn't the only thing I wouldn't go so far as to him to say it's not even a thing Uh, parliamentary elections, parliamentary life the compromises that are necessary for parties to govern you'll never ever produce a world where these things are not necessary what you need is things that go around them and in a way that's probably the only way in which parties are going to renew themselves. You see, one of our problems today is that, as I said, the, 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 the new classes of, of, of post-industrial society haven't really developed autonomous organisations, and, and there's no way a political party could create those. Uh, they have to come out from the society. So we want a lot of other stuff going on. People trying, entrepreneurially, all kinds of ways of organising political movements. And that also means we begin to turn away from just this focus on the state and its action. Not, not instead of it, but alongside it. It's interesting, I'm saying these things, well, this didn't used to be the LSC here, but I mean, um, in the heartland of Sydney and Beatrice Webb, I mean, the, the Webb's great mission was to demonstrate the importance of the state, in particular in building a society for the left, but actually in building a modern society in general, part of the sort of general statist project of modernisation of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, So, for example, they saw trade unionism as a a kind of poor substitute for state regulation of the labour market. And there were those famous battles between Beatrice Webb and Octavia Hill of the Charity Organization Society uh, about whether the state or private charitable initiatives were better at dealing with the problems of, 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 of poverty and so forth. This wasn't, this wasn't the struggle between state and market at all. It's, it's another vis- Octavia Hill's vision of the public. It was a public that was bigger than the state, or different from the state, different from the state the the state wasn't all that occupied public and of course Octavia Hill is the big baddie boo Beatrice is right because the modern social welfare state was built on Beatrice's foundations And, and that task of establishing the role of the state had to be done but we also remember Octavia Hill as the founder of the National Trust which does demonstrate the concept of a public that's not the state and not the market it's interesting. In the recent months, uh, with the battle against the uh, current present British government's uh, attempt to overhaul massively planning controls to enable builders to build on all sorts of uh, treasured pieces of land, a very leading role has been played in that struggle. A kind of a social democratic role, in my view, has been played by the National Trust under the leadership of Simon Jenkins, a kind of very nationalistic Tory. Uh, if If Beatrice had had her way, the National Trust would have been a state agency, and it wouldn't then have been able to counter the power of, of a government. Similarly, if the churches had been completely driven out of education, according to a French Third Republic's uh, secularization project everywhere, uh, the churches wouldn't have been around to stand up for certain values in education that a very monothematic uh, central government strategy has been trying to drive out. We need to look for allies and for causes and possible forms of action all over the place, which is bad news and good news. And the most, and I've been talking a lot recently about the need, how there is... given the Once you get the political domination of the corporation, you then get, as a kind of Hegelian dialectic after that, corporations themselves becoming the targets of political action. And a new route, a new political space is opened up. Uh, and uh, we've seen this, the last few days, we've seen a dramatic example of that here with the... Uh, the the work experience scheme um, and a few campaigners saying this looks a bit like slavery and then major brand name corporations fearing the effect on their reputation of being associated with that and government having to change its policy so once you open up political arenas you don't always have to lobby government to get a change the power of the customer, the power of the potential customer can itself be a kind of power that we shouldn't neglect to use that that, that, that famous quotation from Gandhi that that Neil Lawson puts always on, on compass propaganda, be the change you want to see in the world. You don't just have to wait for big organizations out there to move. In our lives, we've all got little things we can do, little campaigns we can join. And out of that probably comes a future. Well, I started off by saying I was going to lead you to a... A prickly and uncomfortable place but I seem to be ending by telling you <coughs> just join the National Trust and you've done your bit uh, which isn't what I meant to say um, so I think I will just take another minute to take you to a very uncomfortable place to Greece and not as tourists Greece is being offered uh, a very unpleasant deal Right, you all know about it is this deal a good deal will it be of great productive help to the Greek economy. No, because what it's saying is, so long as you reinforce market forces, make yourselves cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, you will solve your problems one day. Is the alternative that the Greek left offer better? No. They're saying, classic classic state socialist solution. Cut ourselves off from the world, leave the European Union, don't trade, stop capital movements... Let's make our own stuff for each other. And we know the kind of economy that gives you in the end, an economy with no innovation, with no efficiency, and lousy, lousy products and services. Is there an alternative? Yes, there is, actually. And came, a proposal for it came from what you might think is a strange source. The German trade union movement said uh, what needs to go alongside this package is an enormous package of aid to, to get, improve Greek infrastructure, training, skills, all those things, so they can be a modern economy does that alternative stand any chance of being adopted? No. Partly because the neoliberal orthodoxy won't stomach it, partly because anyway the Greek elite would would siphon it all off, probably. So does that mean, I think, the Greeks should accept the deal? Yes. Because the alternatives that are realistically on the table for them are worse. Does it mean, therefore, I think they should stomach it and not complain? No. Although the alternative being put forward within Greece by the Greek left is, I think, hopeless, I still would be very sad if the Greek people would say, OK, we'll just put up with it. It's only if around the world we show we've got points of tolerance where we simply protest that this monster of, of corporate wealth is going to, to start to, um, to realise it's got to compromise. That's what happened after the Second World War, and the first half of the 20th century showed the, 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 what happens in societies when ordinary working people are excluded, uh, and, and when their needs aren't met, and when wealthy elites accumulate everything. And capitalism, for a while, learned a lesson from that. It's forgotten that lesson. I remember when, during the 1980s, when Thatcherism was at its height and unemployment was rising in this country, someone asked J.K. Galbraith. Uh, how is this possible? He said, oh, you can do anything you like to the British. They've put up with it. And The world mustn't be like that. We do have to protest and complain and make it difficult to rule us. Um, uh, And that means at times people have to indulge in protest actions that are semi-violent and difficult and obstructive because uh, we're um, we're facing concentration of power in the world now That is quite horrendous. Uh, But the protests and movements won't themselves produce a great hegemonic new world. There isn't a new world to be made. We've just got this one. That's prickly and uncomfortable.
0: Thank you very much for a a, a (laughs) fulsome and uh, excellent contribution, and there are so many points that I'm sure people want to ask about, and we have so little time, so I'm just going to move straight into asking people if they've got questions. Um, Do you want to just indicate? Yes.
2: Actually, you really go from strength to strength and have always something interesting to say. Can I ask you, how, if... If the the social social democracy always goes for the weak, we should expect that that the social democracy needs help from the powerful. And there was capitalist against markets when the welfare state was built in early uh, 20th century. So you had good employers that didn't want to be driven out by the bad employers, and so they supported the welfare state. Where would it come from today with financial markets? Do you think it is conceivable that we have something like bankers against financial markets to save the financial system from itself?
0: okay just I'll collect a few. I yeah, think I think that's, that's a good idea. So um, the gentleman over here.
3: Thank you. Nitin Parshottam, <clears throat> retired local government officer. I've enjoyed um, that exposition of your ideas, Professor. Uh, a couple of thoughts began to emerge in my mind whilst I was listening to it, and I'll try to articulate those and put my question to you. The concept of political Darwinism came to my mind, as I believe that as long as human life has existed on Earth, a DNA, a societal DNA code has developed. and That societal DNA code has got some entrenched elements of the code they include the church, or faith groups, they include factors of production, or businesses, or capital, and many others that over time society has, has developed. Political parties, in, the, in that context of life on earth for human beings, political parties are, the way I look at it, fairly new phenomena. Uh, they've come about to create a role for themselves uh, on human beings. As a former politician myself, I've experienced first-hand
0: the Sorry, role can, of those, I, can I just ask you to move to the question because sure, there's yeah. very little time and I just okay. want to get a number you, yeah. of different... The question things. is,
3: uh, uh, in your studies, um, have you or would you consider looking at the role of political parties in, 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 in societies with very strong forces within it that do provide otherwise a buffer for very extremes in society? Thank you. Okay, can we have one, one other question? Yes, this person here. Thank you very
0: much. Um, basically, I just wanted to try and draw sort of, um, maybe two strong themes, and one is this idea of um, devolution of power and redistribution of power, and the other one is the promotion of diversity, promotion of pluralism um, And When I try and sort of think about maybe in the c- current context of the British left, where those ideas are coming from. The idea of decentralisation decentralization of power seems very prominent with this uh, blue Labour, Morris Glassman style thing, which is also, in a sense, quite contradictory with the idea of pluralism, at least. Uh, there's a sense in which that could be said to be contradictory. So I wonder if you think those two are in conflict and whether or not there's maybe more of a communitarian element as well as a liberal element within what you're talking about? OK, so uh, there are big questions, but if you could keep it reasonably short
1: so we can have some more. Oh, you want me to yeah if it. you don't mind that's um, yeah they're very diverse um, it, there ought to be forces within the financial sector that say we just can't do this again uh, because they know that they, they, they get on an escalator that eventually leads to disaster so they, but there really ought to be a self-correcting mechanism there Uh, it's it's like in the way um, ice hockey players if, if some of them don't wear a helmet they have an advantage over the ones who wear a helmet so they can move more quickly so they would like not to wear a helmet but if they don't wear a helmet they stand a big chance of having a serious brain injury So ice hockey players say, we will wear helmets provided there's a rule, right? So long as everyone's forced to wear a helmet, we'll do it. If it's left to me alone, I won't wear one, right? Impose a rule on me and I'll do it. And that logic ought to apply to the financial sector, right? Provided, so long as this stuff's allowed, I'm going to do it. But I know there's a disaster looming, so I want a rule. The problem is, what happened in 2008, with the exception of Lehman Brothers, they were told, there, there, don't mind. Don't worry, we'll, 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 we'll stop you getting hurt. We, we, it, when you're appalling behavior leads you into catastrophe, we'll be there. And so I fear the message they've been given is the wrong one. And so I would line up with the extreme neoliberals who would say, when they get into a crash, you have to let them crash. Right? Uh, and that means, first of all, you've got to have this separation between investment banking and general banking, which they're resisting and fighting. So uh, you then say, well, won't other sectors of the economy, who are the sectors that want more long-term finance, won't they rebel against it? And I think that's where you, you will get some change, but it won't be in this country. It'll be in France and Germany. Uh, but this country has got itself so tied to the financial sector that we, we, it's difficult to see the British economy as having an interest beyond that sector. Uh, so I think... It, 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 that kind of self correcting within capitalism would come from the non financial sectors, and that would have to come from countries where the financial sector is not as big as ours. And, I think that, and then it's a question of whether the British can successfully stop the reforms happening. Um, on that, the right, yeah, parties are very, very important as buffers. Um, Moderating conflict. I mean, we we forget that's the the history of parties. Is first of all, they were the articulators of interests that sometimes were in violent conflict with each other. But they reach a point where they say, we can't go on fighting like this. We've got to accept a certain framework we live in. They then become the forces through which, um, through which um, uh, productive compromise is channelled and conflict avoided or reduced. Uh, The problem is, of course, that that there's a kind of historical wearing out of that. And so it's very difficult to remember now that, that Christian democracy was a way in which the church gradually came to terms with the secular state because no one ever thinks now about there being a conflict between the Catholic Church and the secular state. Uh, That that social democracy was the voice of the propertyless seeking citizenship. Everyone takes their citizenship for granted. So that the sad thing about parties is that they they represent in their names and in their structures they represent past heroic struggles that have been quelled and that's why they start to look purposeless. Um, and the issue then of course is whether they, can be the, whether they can articulate the new struggles that are emerging, but we need to have them define. It's a nice question, the relationship of all this to communitarianism. Um, there's a, there is a problem of, of communitarianism, of, of a kind of um, a kind of intolerance often that it brings. Uh, that it, it very much puts people in their communities and, and then they really have got to be in those communities. There are a few, uh, a few people who espouse communitarianism who manage to give it a much more liberal interpretation. Now, Amitai Etzioni is an example, who the great founder of the whole movement really. Uh, Amitai himself is a deeply liberal man, uh, but a lot of the people who follow him aren't. Uh, and, and, So, uh, yeah, I have real trouble. (laughs) I have trouble with communitarianism.
0: Okay, can I just get an indication of how many people want to ask questions? Okay, let's try and take four or five quick ones. So let's start with you, and then we'll go over here and over here. Uh, Thank you very much, first of all, for your enlightening lecture. I I found uh, your analysis of the British broadcasting industry particularly illuminating. Uh, And uh, I'm sure that uh, much of its success, I mean, it is a success story, it's due down to uh, good regulation. But I was wondering whether it's uh, also, and perhaps predominantly uh, due, uh, to direct state intervention in the form of, uh, well, public intervention in the form of the BBC, who has a major role in providing the pluralism you uh, advocate, and rightly, and I think, attribute to social democracy. You mentioned J.K. Galbraith. He wrote a book probably in the 1980s called The Culture of Contentment. In it, he said that he generalised about Western societies and said that the poorer people are less likely to vote. Um, If that generalisation holds good, it would actually mean that uh, political parties were no longer a suitable agency for those who don't have power, a significant point for what you're arguing, I think. This gentleman over here.
3: Just to introduce another part of the world, uh, you said earlier on, I think incontrovertibly, that Scandinavia is, as it were, the home of um, uh, uh, social democracy. I wonder what your thoughts were on emerging developments in South America.
0: Right. Um, yeah, any other. The question is um, Bob and uh, this gentleman at the back, and then I think we'll have to have some answers.
2: Do I go first? Yes, please. Thank you for that speech, Colin. That, that was very good. But there's one thing that sort of slightly scratches me, which is that in in the old way that we understood so- social democracy and li- liberalism, the, the latter was one was a movement that was associated with ne- negative li- liberties, and the former was one that was associated with po- positive li- liberties, right? So the, the negative one, I, s- I hear your di- diversity claim, that's sort of, that's where that bit belongs in that kind of realm, it seems to me. So what, what happened with the other bit? I mean, is, has that just fallen by the wayside? Do we no longer have a positive li- liberty which, which, which sort of, you know, where, where social de- democracy says we need, we, we need some kind of um, non-societal kind of... No, we, we, we need li- li- liberties and freedoms and rights that allow us to have claims on society and on the state, which are not reducible to any of the individual li- liberties that are associated with the classical form of li- liberalism. Okay, and lastly this gentleman.
1: Yes, thank you for that inspiring um, lecture. My, my dilemma here is the you mentioned a gap of opportunity in terms of the left organizing one big project, in your experience, with regard to the neoliberalism failing the world, what alternative would you suggest to replace? Sorry, in terms of the neoliberalism and its failure, in terms of the Western construct, which alternative would you suggest? Or Let us know about
0: well, clearly you can't fully answer all of that, but if you could signal your thoughts.
1: Now, BBC is an interesting example of, of, of uh, the, a state institution that is, is slightly beyond the reach of democracy and politicians. It, it, it's that kind of, rather like the law courts. That, that, OK, it's part of the state, but it's, it's, it's beyond reach. Uh, They're really precious institutions, and and I think, I mean, I'm not usually very nationalistic at all, but I'm I'm not particularly proud to belong to any particular nation state. You say, why are you proud? Are you proud to be British at all? Yes, because one of the things we did was to construct that notion of institutions that are public but not controlled by the state. It's a very subtle idea. It's been imitated now very successfully in other parts of the world, and the BBC is part of that. Uh, and so, yes, it's part of the state broadcasting, but if a politician starts to interfere with that, it, it is a scandal, and is, is seen public to be a scandal. It was, I'm probably naive, and it goes on much more than I believe. But, um, so, yes. Um, the, are the poor less likely to vote? They are in the United States more than in most countries, um, and, and that's an historic problem there. It is beginning to be... The case elsewhere, though, actually there, there, in this country, if I remember rightly, it's mainly in local elections that that is a serious factor. Uh, but it is, a, it, it, it is, it is an issue. Uh, and again, that's where, if you don't have movements identifying with and mobilising uh, particular groups in the population, they will drop out and not vote. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know enough about uh, Latin America whether people like Chavez or Morales are further populist leaders in the long line of people who keep taking too much power or whether they're achieving real reforms. I, I just don't study that part of the world. I'm very sorry. Um, and and, and I'm off, several people tell me this. That I, I really want to start looking there. Right? Um, that might be where the Norway of the South is to be found. Um, now, Bob, I, 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 I think I'm talking about positive liberties, you see, because I'm talking about how... Uh, out, what, what comes out of diversity is the creation of things and the innovation of things uh, and, and claims that people do place, uh, if, if one's Trying to remedy market externalities of a negative, the negative market externalities, then that places a claim on institutions to say there are goods here that are being uh, obliterated by a particular market process and action has to be done. So I think, I think I'm quite compatible with sort of a, a March and capabilities and all the other uh, positive liberties arguments. That you, um, it's not just a, a, a kind of thing about ring-holding. Um, I suppose that's where I would have quarreled with Ralph Durendorff, really. Um, what alternatives are there? Well, you see, the, I, I do think the alternative to neoliberalism is a kind of contestation of it through all the movements that we have that contest it uh, and which are vigorous. And this is where, again... Uh, Although I really dislike neoliberalism and I've written books against it, uh, one has to say it is part of the liberal family in that it does leave space for some diversity of interpretation. In a way that really wasn't very true at all, except in very minor ways uh, of state socialism. And so, if you look at uh, 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 what Danes do when they go neoliberal, it's very different from what the British do when they go neoliberal, which is itself different from what, from what Americans do. And so, the, the, the mere fact that a capitalist society does have within it—we well, still—it's a democratic capitalist society still—which means there are resources that one can try to mobilise. Uh, and the the, the, the the hope for our future is that we just try and mobilize more and more of those. And it might be, I think probably the best we're going to get is moderated neoliberalism. And there is what I, I, I suspect, I was going to talk about this, but I realized I didn't have time, so I can cheat and do it now. Uh, there is what I think is a kind of real new shabby compromise of the 21st century and that is, is, that this is a, see the big forces in the world are the, the, the corporate wealth and power on the one hand and the, the social citizenship that we've built up over the last getting on for a century um, and there's a kind of shabby compromise of that that says yeah you can have your welfare state provided corporations can make a fat living delivering it that is actually what is happening in Sweden and Finland and, Dan- and Denmark and Norway. That, that, that's the kind of deal they're getting. Right? It's actually the deal Obama got for his health bill in the end. He got some health reforms through, provided corporations could make a lot of money delivering it. It's a shabby compromise. It's not an acceptable compromise. But it is different from a world which says, as the poor old Greeks have been told, you can't have a welfare state at all. So there's sort of scope for struggle and creating new things, even in this context.
0: Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Professor Crouch. Um, I think you've done a sterling job of making us uncomfortable. You you, you sought to make us uncomfortable at the beginning, and you persisted in making us uncomfortable at the end. And I I think that's really one of the first tasks of an intellectual, to, to, to make the audience uncomfortable, to make the audience think again about things that they might not have thought about before. And I think you've also engaged in one of the first tasks of an intellectual engaged in public debate, because you haven't sought simply to criticise the traditions which you've spoken about, but you've also um, had the gumption to put forward your own proposal about what should happen. And though many people may agree and disagree with different points, that is surely the order of the day for us uh, at the time we're living in today. So I'd like you all to join me in thanking uh, Colin Croucher, an important public intellectual.